Well, if you've been here for the last few weeks, um, we've sort of been going through a little mini-series, which we don't have a title for, uh, but it's essentially been about church life. Um, what happens in the church and why do we do the things that we do in the church? Uh, a few weeks ago, or two weeks ago, uh, we looked at baptism. Isaias Munoz preached a great message on baptism. And then last week, if you were here, Dan Crabtree was in town visiting and preached a wonderful message on the Lord's Supper. Uh, Today, we're going to look at music, Um, why Christians sing. I I don't know if I actually really need to to say much after that last song. Um, What you've just experienced is is why Christians sing. But for a few minutes, I would like to go into Scripture and and explore that topic. Next week, Matt Ng will be preaching on the role of this in church, the role of preaching itself. We thought it was a bit ironic to uh, have the music uh, guy, uh, who's such a gifted leader in that realm, uh, preach on preaching, and then me, who can't carry a tune, uh, preach on music. So I was looking up musical terms this week. It's not a big deal. Um, we're we're going to start, uh, we're, we're going to end in a, in a text in the New Testament, um, but we're going to kind of work our way through some passages in Scripture. Uh, but, but I wanted to, to begin just by talking to you about music itself. M- music is powerful, isn't it? It really is a, a powerful catalyst for human expression, human emotion. I'm sure you can relate to hearing a song that it has this sort of grip on your mind, your emotions, that, that takes you back to maybe a broken relationship in the past. Or, or maybe it's a song that was played at the funeral of a loved one. And every time you hear those sounds, you're ushered back into that moment. And, and maybe even the overwhelming feelings of sadness creep in. I know for me, there are times when I will hear a song that takes me back to my childhood. And all of a sudden, for those few moments, I'm six years old again. Have you experienced that? Music is is powerful. It's got this power to imprint itself on our souls, sometimes leaving scars. Why? Why? Why is music so powerful? One writer supposed this. um, Music is a language of emotion in that it can represent different feelings and barge into the soul with no boundaries. There's something, isn't there, about music that communicates what we feel otherwise may be impossible to communicate. I've often thought it was, it, it's fascinating that a, a singer on a stage, maybe like this one, just simply holding a guitar and a pick, can virtually control the, the emotions and the mindset and the behavior of 10,000 people listening. So, so at one moment, there's this sense of nostalgia and people in the crowd are crying. 
And only a few minutes later, there might be uh, sounds coming from the artist that, that inspire and stir up and energize, or maybe anger. This, this power that the musician holds over the audience. One cognitive psychologist by the name of Steven Pinker, um, he's called music auditory cheesecake. Like cheesecake, it, it unleashes that pleasure and reward sense in your body. And so you can't get enough of it. Um, if you don't like cheesecake, pick your poison. Uh, and music can be like that. Have you ever heard a song that you, you play on repeat over and over and over until you become sick of it? I experience that every day because I have a three-year-old. <laughs> I'm a gummy bear is indelibly imprinted on my mind. It was fun at first. But, but music can draw you in. It's designed to draw you in. It's designed to engage your senses. Not only your hearing, but you ever feel goosebumps? Ever want to dance? Not at Grace Church. Have your wedding somewhere else. But it's designed to do that. You know, there's a really famous example of this. Um, Elvis Presley. America has had 47 presidents. Only one king. (laughs) There was a song that was one of Elvis' biggest hits, Are You Lonesome Tonight? Elvis loved that song. And he performed it probably thousands of times. And yet, Are You Lonesome Tonight was the one song that the king couldn't sing. But he insisted on performing it over and over again. It's actually a strange phenomenon that some musical scholars have come to study in Elvis. Trying to figure out. Because he would perform this song, insist on performing it. It's a beautiful song. And yet he could never get the lyrics right. In fact, there are dozens of recordings of Elvis singing, Are You Lonesome Tonight? And they are labeled at the Sony headquarters with different labels, Laughing Elvis, Crying Elvis, Angry Elvis. Because whenever he would get to a certain point in the chorus of that song, he would break down. He, He would either start laughing uncontrollably, and the audience is laughing, or he would start sobbing, or he would speak inaudibly, and he just couldn't get through it, and yet he insisted on singing it. Why? That chorus broke Elvis. Because it reminded him of his wife, a woman who chose to leave him, although he was helplessly and hopelessly in love with her. It did something to Elvis's soul. He couldn't stop singing that song, and yet he couldn't sing it. There is a power in music as a catalyst for human emotion. It shouldn't surprise us then that we find music all throughout Scripture, In fact, in Job 38.7, when God is questioning Job, 
One of the questions God asks Job is, Job, where were you? Were you there before the foundation of the world when the morning stars sang for joy? Before this world was created, before any cultures and peoples, the angels were singing. In fact, the very first words in Scripture recorded of a human speaking seem to be a song. They're constructed poetically in a way that would have been sung in the Hebrew language. Adam saying of his wife, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The very first human words, a poetic love song. We find very early on in Genesis chapter 4, verse 22, we read of Tubal Cain, who was the forger of all brass and uh, iron instruments. Tubal Cain, the father of instruments. In fact, if you were to really go deep into the Old Testament, you would find people sing about everything. I was uh, studying this the other day and uh, turned to one of my buddies uh, who's in seminary. And I said, did you know that the people of Israel sang two wells, like a, a well? They sang to them. And he's like, what are you talking about? Listen to this. This is uh, in Numbers. Then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to it. They're, they're singing to a, to a well. Come on, well, give us water. Uh, They sang about everything. They sang when they tread grapes for wine. They sang when they harvested. They sang um, at funerals. They sang at weddings. They sang to rally the troops before war. And they sang after the war if they won. Uh, Singing is all throughout the Old Testament. We see it established uh, cultures. But more than that, we see in Scripture that music is a powerful catalyst for worshiping God. There are so many words used in Hebrew and Greek throughout Scripture for singing, but one that you might be quite familiar with is Hallel. It it literally means a song of praise. It's the word uh, that gives us our English word, hymn. So when we sing a hymn, the root of that is Hallel. And we find Hallel as well as Toda and other words throughout the Old Testament talking of songs, specifically songs that praise God. We see it very early on. If you'd like, you can turn with me. I'll turn to a a couple passages, or you can just listen to Exodus 15, uh, a significant moment in Israel's history. They've just come through the Red Sea. God has miraculously delivered them from Pharaoh's army. And what is their response? We see in Exodus 15.1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The song is a a majestic song. You would uh, do well to go back and, and explore it a bit on your own. Um, But immediately after that song, they weren't done singing because Miriam, the prophetess, in verse 20 of Exodus 15, uh, the sister of Aaron took a tambourine in her hand and took all the women out with her with tambourines and dancing. And they began to sing. And Miriam uh, creates another song. They're not done singing because look at what God's done for them. Their response 
to sing praises to Yahweh. If you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 31, this is a peculiar song, which maybe we forget about. God actually crafts a song to Israel. Look at verse 19. Now, therefore, this is God speaking to Moses. Write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Fascinating. If you were going to chapter 32, you see that song, and, and God uses music to instruct the people and actually to testify against them because what he reveals to Moses is they're going to abandon me. And when they abandon me, I want that song in their minds. You know how earworms are, right? Uh, the other day, I was, I was whistling or, or humming a song, and I could not get it out of my mind. And I kept going back to it. Well, well, God wants this earworm in the ears of Israel. When they abandon him, they'll be humming of his glory and faithfulness and protection and guidance as a testimony against their rebellion. But, but God employs music to instruct his people. Um, 1 Samuel 18, um, we read that really when, when David's being introduced into the narrative of the Bible, um, he's done something great. He's killed Goliath, and again, Israel is rescued. And we read again that um, in 18.7, the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. You, you see, this is a significant moment. Every time Israel's on the brink of extinction and they're delivered, what do they do? They sing. They sing. Uh, David is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. And what a remarkable gift David gave to us in the Psalms. David wrote the majority of the Psalms, but also those he employed in temple service wrote many of the Psalms as well, the sons of Korah, he and others. David actually employed them to, to um, write and perform and compose music. And we've been given this remarkable book in our Bibles. I, maybe sometimes we forget um, what the Psalms are. It's actually a hymn book. It's like the hymns of grace. They would work through these hymns and they would sing them at different points throughout the year when they were celebrating different feasts or festivals. We have these beautiful psalms and, and in the psalms, there's such a diversity of, of song, isn't there? We, we have a psalm like Psalm 42, a song of desperation. Maybe that's like the emo category for the psalms. Where, where I thirst and I pant for you. Where are you, God? How long? Psalm 80 is a psalm of confusion. Listen, listen to the words of, of Psalm 80. It's just, it's, it's just expression of, of confusion. Um, oh Lord, oh Yahweh, God of hosts, verse 4. How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? How, how long is this going to go on? Uh, they're just singing to God confused. You have psalms of deliverance, psalms of anger, psalms of rejection, adoption, 
all sorts of songs in the psalm book or the song book of Israel. Once we move into the New Testament, we find music continues. It's, it's not as often spoken of, but just as significant. In Luke chapter 1, we see Mary's Magnifica. Here, this young woman has discovered that in her womb, the child she's carrying is the Messiah to deliver the nation. Something that had been anticipated for thousands of years. And when she comes to this realization... And she, she visits Elizabeth, who's carrying John. She sings a song, praising God. When the angels see in Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, that Jesus has been born, the angels begin to sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know, Jesus sang as well. After instituting the Lord's Supper, just before his crucifixion, Jesus and his disciples sang. They sang. They sang hymns, probably the Hallel from Psalms 116. Here's an interesting one. Turn to Acts 16. I want you to look at this one. This will make you feel bad about whenever you complain because your iPhone lost battery or whatever. Or like your coffee from Starbucks was a little cold. Uh, Check out Paul and Silas getting brutally beaten and then thrown into a prison. And all through the night, Look at Acts 16 and verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Remarkable. Not only only a remarkable response to a very difficult circumstance, but they're singing and everyone's listening And in fact, the Roman jailer who would have been listening as well in the morning is converted. In large measure, the influence of of certainly the content of what these men imprisoned were singing to God. So friends, we see that, that not only is music this powerful catalyst for expressing human emotion, but music is a powerful catalyst for worshiping God. And now we come to the, to the texts that I want us to really spend the rest of our time in uh, today, Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. We're going to go back and forth between these two texts because you'll see they're parallel. But let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. We're going to discover some things about why Christians sing from these texts. Paul writes to the, uh, to the Ephesians. Did I say Colossians first? Ephesians first. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs 
singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Turn over just a couple pages to Colossians chapter 3. And we'll start, actually, we're, we're going to look at a, a bit of a larger context in a minute, but just, just read verses 16 and 17 with me. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. These texts are teaching us certain things about why Christians sing. And and they have a lot to say about music. And we're going to look at that in a few moments. What specifically these texts teach us about singing in worship and music as a catalyst for praise. But really, to fully understand um, these texts and the place of singing in Christian worship, we need to step back and look more broadly at what these texts teach us about worship itself. What is Paul instructing us and informing us regarding worship itself? First, it teaches us the breadth of worship, the breadth, not breath, breadth. I'm trying to get the D in there, B-R-E-A-D-T-H, breadth, the wideness of worship. What, what does worship include? Um, I think it, it probably would be helpful to give a definition of worship at this point. Um, I've always found Psalm 29 to be helpful. Um, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. A very succinct definition of worship. What is worship? Giving to God what is due him. And so that certainly encompasses what we say about him, right? He is holy. He is sovereign. He is good. Singing to him, speaking of him, giving him the glory due him in our words. But it also includes how we act. It includes our obedience to him. Um, This is Romans chapter 12. Just listen to the opening words of Romans 12. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, like a sacrifice is placed on the altar. Place your lives on the altar of service to God. That constitutes worship. That is giving him the glory to his name. When an animal was sacrificed on the altar, nothing was held back, was it? The lamb wasn't going to the altar, looking back and going, okay, guys, lunch at 12, I'll be back. No, no, everything was given. And so Paul is saying, for you to worship, everything is given to him. Not just your words, but your whole life. It's teaching us that that worship is holistic. It involves everything. And here in Ephesians and in Colossians, we see that really beautifully drawn out. Um, Paul is contrasting your life before Christ, 
This is Trishan, ages 1 to 11. Before Christ, your, your life was characterized by idolatry and immorality and foolishness. In, in both letters, Paul's doing this, in Ephesians and in Colossians. And here in Ephesians 15, he comes to this switch where he says, you're no longer pre-Christ. Now you've been saved. So in verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And he gives these instructions on how we should offer ourselves to God in worship. And look at everything that's included in that. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And, and what is the result of that filling? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. But not only that, giving thanks to the Lord. And notice this in verse 21, submitting to one another. Turn over to Colossians 3. Beginning in verse 12 of Colossians 3, uh, Paul fleshes this out even more. What does it look like to put your life on the altar of worship to God? Well, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And then he comes to our text, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Verse 17 tells us to give thanks. What we need to notice from this text before we get into the, the lessons on worship is the breadth of worship. What Paul is teaching us is that worship goes beyond singing. In fact, it has to do with the compassion in your heart. It has to do with, are you forgiving one another? Are you allowing the peace of Christ to dwell in your heart? Are you bearing with those who are, who are rather difficult to bear with? Are you, friends, living a life of, of love? A life characterized by the love Christ has shown you? Are, are you showing that to others? So by looking at these texts and, and seeing what does it look like to, to live lives of worship to God, we see that, that worship is holistic. The, the breadth of it encompasses everything. Um, okay, so implication for you and me. Worship is not confined to one or two hours on Sunday morning. Worship is not confined to you driving in your car on Monday, headed for work, just listening to oceans on repeat. Spirit, lead me. Oh, it's a great time of worship. That's a component. But, but, but worship goes beyond that. Because worship... Worship goes outside of the car into the workplace and is defined by how you treat that difficult boss. 
Yes, this hour being led in song is worship, but so is what you were doing last night. So it will be what you're doing tomorrow morning. Worship is holistic. It's not confined to one hour of music. Music is a catalyst for worship, expressing yourself and and having a heart attitude toward God and transforming your life. But it is not the entirety of worship. And so that's the first lesson I want us to see is, is the breadth of worship goes beyond music Itself. But, but secondly, consider this from these two texts, the source of worship. And go back to Ephesians 5. And look at verse 18. It's a very interesting phrase. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's an interesting phrase because in the original language, it's a present imperative. Which means it's for you to do today and continually. So you could read this as, don't get drunk with wine, but be being filled with the Spirit. Do it. Be being filled with the Spirit. Now, I, I could ask you, okay, go, go be filled with the Spirit. And there might be some confusion as to how you do that. So I want to give you what might be one of the most practical theological connections in your Christian life. What I want to show you from these texts may be one of the most practical theological connections in your life. Because there's the command, be filled with the Spirit. Now, pre-Grace Church could have been a lot easier to do. Because get your shofar horn, go to the tongue service, dance in front of the cross, and just that's how we get filled with the Spirit. I'm just going to speak in tongues. I'm going to blow the shofar. I'm going to dance. I'm going to, this is, this is, I've been to those services and, and it's, it's this idea of if, if you just do this action or if you speak like this, that's being filled with the spirit. But unfortunately you listened to strange fire, you read the book. And so now that's out. So how do you get filled with the spirit? That was a joke. How do you get filled with the spirit? If I were to command you right now, go, go be filled with the spirit. What are you, what are you going to do? Lindrace, can you come and sing for us real quick? How do I get filled with the Spirit? Notice this text. Do not get drunk with wine, but for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What's next? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you turn over to Colossians 3, it's interesting that all of those elements are in Colossians 3 as well. It's, it's essentially a parallel text. Paul is copy and pasting from one scroll to the other in his letters to the church. He says in verse 16, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It's the same elements. It's basically the same structure in the language as well. He's saying, this should be the result. This is how you worship. And yet there's a difference in Colossians 3. Instead of saying, be filled with the Spirit, notice what he says at the start of verse 16. Let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly. 
Friends, here's the connection. It is through the word of Christ abiding in your heart that the Holy Spirit of God indwells your life and influences your life. We only need to go to Jesus Christ as an illustration of this. During his time on earth, if you remember in Luke chapter 4, it says Jesus, full of the Spirit, went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And when Satan himself stands before Christ and tempts him to have the the crown by foregoing the cross, how does Jesus Christ resist? Full of the Spirit, influenced, overpowered by the Spirit of the living God, how does he stand up to to the temptation of Satan? It is written. It is written. It is written. Friends, one of the most practical connections that can be made in your life as a Christian is that the Holy Spirit of God indwells and influences through the Word of God. Which means, is your life looking a lot like the fruit of the flesh? Are you seeing in your life, I'm just being overruled by the flesh, my lust and my impulses and my anger, there's a very simple solution to get to the fruit of the Spirit. There's a very simple solution to to transform the patterns of your life, and it's this, get in the word of Christ. Isn't that what Psalm 119 tells us? I've written your law upon my heart that I might not sin against you. Get in the word, Christian. To see the power of the Spirit in your life. So as we step back, I I just wanted us to note that. The the breadth of worship goes beyond music. But the source of worship is is the divine. It's the Spirit of the living God. Producing in our lives worship in action and in word. But these texts do have several lessons for us on music. And so we'll we'll close our time by by looking at those. Four lessons on music as a catalyst for worship. Um, In both of these texts from Paul, there's a bit of context. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, we read, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Look in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. Here, meaning in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Both of these letters are concerned with unity in the body. The, the breaking down of barrier between Jew and Gentile. The, the breaking down of socioeconomic distinctions, ethnic distinctions in the church. Here, we are Christ. Christ is in all. And all are in Christ. That's what unites us. And the first lesson we learn from these texts on music as a catalyst for worship is this. 
music cultivates unity. And I just want you to notice the wording of Ephesians 5, 19. After saying, be filled with the Spirit, he says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You, you do realize that in singing, we're, we're speaking to one another. Did you think about that as we sang, turn your eyes upon Jesus? Who were you talking to? Jesus? Jesus, turn your eyes upon Jesus? No, you were, you were talking to each other. You were exhorting yourself, but you were exhorting the person behind you as well. Maybe not the most gifted, you know, maybe you weren't carrying the tune the greatest, but they heard you anyway. Uh, who do you think you were talking to when you said, come now before him and rejoice? You're, you're speaking to the people in this room. And, and think about the, the beauty of this. Friends, this is a foretaste of heaven. When, when you just listen to, to Revelation 19, listen to these words. Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. In verse 6, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever been to Niagara Falls and heard the rumbling of the falls? John has a glimpse into heaven and he hears this roaring of water. And what is it? It's the people singing. When we're in this room singing, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Oh, the bliss of that glorious thought uniting our voices. At that moment, it doesn't matter what career you have, how much is in your savings account, the color of your skin, your ethnic heritage, whether you like taquitos or don't even know what a taquito is. It doesn't matter. In that moment, there's a unity There's a coming together bound by this singular truth of who you're singing to, what you're singing of. Singing cultivates unity in the body of Christ. But secondly, this text shows us that singing magnifies God's glory. We're not only singing to one another. Ephesians 5 Verse 19, making melody to the Lord. Colossians, Paul says it as well. Verse 16, with thankfulness at the end of it, in your hearts to God. Music magnifies the glory of God. And notice the different words given for the songs. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. In that, comprised in that, is such a variety of music. There's not only one chant we chant, or we don't only sing when we're happy. No, no, no. In worship, even as we sing two more songs at the end of this, just think of the diversity of thought. It's very much like the Psalms. You may be confused or angry or rejoicing and overflowing with gratitude. 
There's a diversity. But as you rehearse those truths about God to God, you are audibly magnifying the glory of God. Remember Paul and Silas in jail? Singing to God of who he is and what he's done. And to the others listening around, including including that jailer, in their hearts, the person and work of Yahweh was magnified. And at least one of them bowed the knee to King Jesus. Because singing magnifies the glory of God. A third lesson from these texts, singing demonstrates regeneration. As the spirit fills, as the word indwells, the response is song. It's like Mentos in a Coke bottle. You put the Mentos in, Coke bottle explodes. So it is the the presence of the Holy Spirit in the soul of a believer. The spirit in, through the word, out comes singing. Out comes singing, Paul shows us. Martin Luther says, if any would not sing and talk of what Christ has done for us, he shows thereby that he does not really believe it. Isn't it Psalm 40, verse 3, that says, he put a new song in my heart? God puts the song there. It's a result of being filled by the Spirit of God. There's a fourth lesson, and this is where I want us to conclude. Music as a catalyst for worship, um, it produces thanksgiving. If you noticed in both texts, there's the inclusion of thanksgiving in the song. Verse 20 of Ephesians 5, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. In Colossians 3, he says the same. Let me get there. Um, Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing produces thanksgiving. Now, you say, why? We could spend many hours going through scripture to discover why. The, The Lord protects those he loves. He provides for those he loves. He gives sleep and rest and satisfaction and joy. We, we could walk through, why do Christians sing? And why are, do they sing out of gratitude? Oh, there's so many reasons. But there's a preeminent reason we sing with gratitude. And to discover it, I want you to come with me into the halls of heaven. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. As John has the curtain pulled back and peers into glory, this is what he sees before the throne of God. Revelation 5, verse 9. As they fall down before the Lamb, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were 
slaughtered. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, John says, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriad of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. How does singing create thanksgiving? Because as we recount the gospel, what Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has done on our behalf, we can't but sing. Remember Israel on the other side of the Red Sea? They look back at the devastation of a powerful army decimated. They sing. They sing. They, they compose this masterful piece right there and then, and they're done singing the song, and Miriam says, we're not done. She composes a song, and they begin dancing and singing. It's Mentos in the Coke. It's, there's, there's no other reaction possible. Because of the gratitude, we were, we were about to be destroyed. Think of David slaughtering Goliath, the nation in peril, on the brink of extinction, a giant standing before them. We're hopeless. And out comes David, this redeemer, to rescue them. The response, singing. And so here you are, standing at the foot of the cross. Standing before a tomb, an empty tomb. What's the response? Can you sing the song being sung in heaven? Worthy is the lamb who is slaughtered. I said at the start that, that there's something about music that communicates what we feel is impossible to communicate. Try to communicate your gratitude for what Christ has done. But isn't there a moment as we were just being led in song where it was doing something that you couldn't have just put in a sentence? You're expressing yourself in a way that kind of is impossible apart from that. Because music is a powerful catalyst for worshiping our creator. And so Christian, sing at the foot of the cross, standing before the empty tomb. We sing because we're grateful. Let's pray. Father,
May you put on every heart in this room a new song. A song of gratitude and thanksgiving for what you have done on our behalf as hopelessly hell-bound sinners. And Lord, help us to sing, to glorify your name, to proclaim your gospel, to unite one another, and to express our thanksgiving. In the name of Christ, we pray.